Welcome to a new episode of Forward, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. Do you keep a diary or a journal? Perhaps your diary isn't a physical notebook, but your Instagram posts, your Facebook page, or even your Twitter feed. We write diaries for all kinds of personal reasons and record all types of different information, but we might not think about how that information can be used. This episode, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Danny Sampson, a history professor who has been using the 19th century diary of a miller in Nova Scotia to explore the political and social forces of the time. We'll also hear about the interesting digital project his students have just completed that's getting some scholarly attention. Joining me today is Dr. Daniel Sampson, Associate Professor with the Department of History. He is a historian of rural 18th and 19th century Nova Scotia and researches the political and social processes that forged modernity in the colonial countryside. He's currently writing a book-length biography of 19th century Nova Scotia miller James Barry, who lived from 1822 to 1906 at Six Mile Brook in Pictou, Nova Scotia. Dr. Sampson has also been active in developing online courses that employ digital tools to help develop critical reading skills and explore combinations of slow and distant reading through transcription exercises. Thank you for joining me today. Delighted to be here, Alison. So I wanted to start our conversation today by asking you about one of your most recent projects, which was working with fourth year students to create a website about the forced relocation of Acadians from Ile St. Jean, modern day Prince Edward Island in the 18th century. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that project and perhaps how you had to adapt it or um, how it how it adapted with the disruption of academic life uh, due to the pandemic? Yeah, well, that that was that was interesting to be sure. Um, in fact, you and I were talking the other day, and I on, on email, and I wrote something about you know planning this thing incredibly carefully, and thought thinking I had everything in place, but you know, <laughs> the global pandemic was not one of the things I planned on. Um, it was an interesting project. It was the first time I'd done this kind of project, this kind of collaborative web-based project. I've done collaborative projects before, but not where they would have this kind of public outcome. And I really wanted to see this as a, as a public outcome. Uh, I wanted them to have something that they would be proud of and wanted to show off later. I think a, a lot of us in the university in the past 10 years or so have begun thinking about that, that well, in the humanities anyhow, that paper, you know, that paper that you pass in. And I don't know if you've ever gone into a department office in, in June, but there's a pile of papers there that just never got picked up. And and that's really tragic because, of course, they, well, sometimes they don't, but often, most often, they put their hearts and souls into those things. And it seems a shame not to have it um, have a legacy of some sort. So it's this having, having this kind of public project seemed really, really important that way. And I think something they can be proud of and they can put on a CV and say, I was a team member on this. Look, my name's at the bottom there. I'm, I'm part of that group. And there's all kinds of, you know, we're, we're big these days on transferable skills and those kinds of things. And certainly the project was big on that. Um, but it was also really wanting them to be able to tackle something on their own. I mean, I certainly shaped it. I curated it and kind of made the documents available, the kind of basic materials that would be available. But after that, I said, you know, we're just kind of pretending it's it's an exercise like you've gone in and you've done all this basic research. 
And now you have to set about doing it. I've just kind of cut that first part of the process out. Now you're going to, you still have to kind of figure out what's going on here, what you can do with these documents and so on. And they did. And they sat down and, you know, again, we curated in fashions. They did a paper at the beginning of the term where they kind of developed some expertise in particular areas. Some of them went off in social dimensions. Some of them went off in women's history. Some of them went off, but looking at kind of broad 18th century topics. And they came together as a group of then knowledgeable people about the 18th century to put together this project. And, 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 you know, what they put together was fabulous. But to have done so with the last five weeks where they didn't actually see each other, well, except as you and I are seeing each other now on the screen, is really remarkable. <clears throat> and I really kind of visualized the process of them working together, sitting around tables, looking at screens and pushing pictures and images around and comparing texts and stuff. And of course, that never, well, it kind of happened on the screen, but not really. <laughs> it's much harder to do on a screen than it is sitting around a table. And yet they pulled it off. And I, I, I you know, I was so impressed by their, by, but, you know, just by the, the willingness and the, the good natured spirit that they brought to this to, to pull that all together. So I think they, I think, learned a lot just in that dimension of it, of how to cooperate under extraordinary circumstances. I think there was a tremendous amount of learning came out of that and a first-rate history project. So, I mean, to me, it was a real, it was a real success. Yeah. And we will include a link to that very neat website in our foot, in our show footnotes. Um, So the deportation of the Acadians from Ile Saint-Jean, why that particular topic? And I have to confess, I have a history degree and it was not something I don't, I ever recall coming across in any of my history courses. Well, it's an, it's an event that interests me. Um, I have a, a, a summer house in Prince Edward Island. I bought a 1835 farmhouse that I'm incredibly slowly renovating. And I emphasize the slowly. It's still kind of a wreck. But anyhow, um, and I'm Acadian, so I have an interest in Acadian history. It's not Prince Edward Island Acadian history, but it's Acadian history. And I teach the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and one of the biggest events, well, not one of them, I think the biggest event of the 18th and 19th century period, with the possible exception of the American and French and Haitian revolutions, is the Seven Years' War. And the Seven Years' War really is the kind of grounding for all of those later events. Uh, the American Revolution is very much an outgrowth of the Seven Years' War. So it's this huge event that's important for Canadian history, uh, it's important for global history, uh, and so on. And within that story, there's the story of the expulsion of the Acadians, which is a fairly well-known story. I think most Canadians are at least familiar with that basics that, 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 that it happened, uh, though probably a little after that. They might be familiar with Evangeline and the, the kind of historic commemorations of it in that sort of sense. But not the Cape Breton versions of it and not the Ile Saint, not the PEI versions of it, the Ile Saint-Jean, Ile Royale stories. And it, that's because it gets into the later history of the war. It's not the main expulsion. It's a secondary expulsion. It happens a couple of years later. And so I think it's much less well known. And third, I guess I would say just because it's manageable, it's a, it's a small enough event at, at the beginning of the 1740s, there's only about 1,500 people, uh, settlers, there's, another, there's an indigenous population as well, uh, but there's only about 1,500 French colonial settlers on the island. So it's a pretty small population. In the year or two leading up to the expulsion, they're flooded with refugees from what is now mainland Nova Scotia. So the population skyrockets very, very quickly to over 5,000. But in terms of kind of looking at who was there in the immediate years leading up to that, you've got a fairly small population settled in a fairly small area. It's basically what is today the Hillsborough River, which is the river that flows by Charlottetown. 
Um, it's a pr pretty self-contained little area. Most of them are farmers, although there's a, a significant um, uh, fishing village on the other side, on the north side of the island, called uh, Saint Pierre. But basically, you know, it's a fairly homogenous, fairly coherent little thing. So, so, so a nice little project that's that operates on a big scale because it is still part of the Seven Years' War, and you still kind of have to understand the broader, under, broader contours of the Seven Years' War to really understand what's going on there on the ground. So, I think it was a good project for knitting together a viable primary research-based project um, that still allowed them to see a really big picture of a very important event. And for our listeners who may not be as familiar with their history, uh, when we're talking about the Seven Years' War, that's the conflict between the British and the French. They're, they're the principles. Um, it, it involves much of Europe. Um, and But it's really the first, people refer to the First and Second World Wars as the First and Second World Wars. Um, but really, the Seven Years' War is the first global conflict. Um, it takes place in Europe, it takes place in North America, it takes place in Africa, it takes place in Asia, China and India. The only continent it doesn't take place on is Australia. Um, ah. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a truly global war. And it really represents kind of the, it, a lot of people will point out that that the, the, that, uh, the scramble for Africa and and European late 19th century European imperialism is is a major cause of the first first world war. A global scramble for resources and trade capacity is really what lies at the heart of the Seven Years' War as well. So there's there, there's very much direct parallels to our world, the modern world, the globalized world. Uh, the Seven Years' War is when you begin to see not only that that kind of world is emerging, but the conflicts that exist within that. Now, your students tracked. Uh, five families in particular, as they were deported from modern-day Nova Scotia to Prince Edward Island, and then to France, and then to Caribbean and Louisiana, and the, probably a few other places I've missed there. What did that person like? What what impact does uh, exploring those personal stories have for the students and for researchers as well? It's that simple capacity for human empathy to see what's going on there. It's again, the parallel with the first year war is, is a good one. And I'm just going to that because I think people are more familiar with imagining that I've lectured in the first world war a lot. I don't teach this course anymore, but I used to teach a course in the first world war. And, you know, you throw out the numbers and the numbers are enormous. They're, they're huge numbers of people dying all the time. Of course, it's, it's completely abstract. It, it's, it's kind of hard to um, imagine yourself or even another human being in that setting. It's just kind of too much. Um, the Seven Years' War is very much like that. And the expulsion of 15,000 Acadians is very much like that. Well, what does it mean to expel 15,000 people? And so they got stuck on a boat and sent back to France. Kind of so what? Well, when you track these families, you... You see, you mentioned some of them were refugees from Nova Scotia, but some of them hadn't been refugees from, from Nova Scotia. Some of them had been uh, Ile Saint-Jean since the 1720s. Some of them had been displaced from Newfoundland in an earlier war uh, when there was the French territory in what is now Newfoundland. But they called it Terre Neuve. And uh, so there's all these different stories going on. And just seeing how disrupted and yet resilient these people were, continuing to try to rebuild their farms, rebuild their lives um, in these extraordinary circumstances, I think is really quite remarkable. And I watched them no longer talking about abstract people in the past, but using first names to refer to these people because they have somehow come to get to know these people. Um, and I think when they saw that level of human suffering, that level of 
of the, disrupt, the disruption and often destruction and death of these people. Some of these people die. Some of those, one of those families dies in the, in the deportation. Uh, at least, the total deportation is something like 3,000. The, the statistics aren't clear on this, but something like 3,000 people die in that deportation. But to see a family with children and a grandfather, that they die uh, as you're getting to know them, that's a different story. And I think it allows them to see that much more clearly and understand the importance of what they're talking about, that human experience, that history is about human experience. Uh, and if they can understand that family and their place in that broader story, that that's a really good and powerful thing. And also a good vehicle. We are thinking of this as a public history project, that other people, people who, like yourself, <laughs> who didn't study this in university, <laughs> um, who could then go to the site and actually learn not just about the event, but about the human stories within that. And it seems to me, just in in hearing you describe it, that there's some modern connections with with ongoing refugee crises and and that kinds of things. Did did you see students making making connections at all? In my second year class, the Colonial North American Survey, I, I make these parallels explicitly. I, I want them to see those parallels explicitly. In the fourth year classes, I I, I try not to do that. I try to let them figure that stuff out. And you see, you know, it's inconsistent. I, I, I would love to say they all kind of rose to the occasion and all made that quick identification. They, they didn't. Some of them did. And some of them did it in ways, but not in other ways. But it is critical that they see, I mean, you know, there's kind of a cliche being thrown out there today that, you know, that we're all immigrants, which of course excludes a, a significant chunk of our population who were here for a long time. Um, but th that kind of notion that refugees and refugee stories is an ongoing story that that we can see in our own past. It's those people who are coming to our country today who are fleeing disrupted lives, um, that they form a part of a much broader story, a much broader cloth of human history, and that we should be able to identify that and understand that. And, and I think that's really, really important. I think that's the, one of the most important things of history is allowing people to make those kinds of identifications, to understand that that, that, ex, that an experience today or an experience from the past are not alien. They're not, they're not just things that happen. It's not just stuff in the past. Uh, that they are the stuff of life. And we can see that and identify with that. That's really powerful. Now, how did the students track these families? Like what, what kinds of sources did they have to work with? <laughs> and particularly say, during the pandemic when the libraries and archives uh, got shut down. <laughs> well, um, first off, God bless the internet because it's, 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 it's been wonderful. Um, uh, the, um, there's a lot of digitized sources out there these days that certainly certainly didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, there's there's just stuff available, and again, this was kind of part of the advanced preparation for the course that was not intended for this outcome. Um, but I wanted to have sources that were readily available for them. I didn't want to send them off to Toronto. I didn't want to send them off to Ottawa. <laughs> I'm sure they would have loved to have popped off to Paris for for a, a week of intense research, but. Um, uh, but the but the French National Archives has a tremendous online collection. Uh, the Canadian online, uh, National Archives have a very good online collection. So there was lots of stuff available online. But I also have to say they were much more resourceful than I expected or, or that I anticipated they would be. To do that kind of research is not easy. It's really going into um, into a census. Uh, going into church records, and these are really fragmentary for the for the Acadian period. Much of it, much of that stuff was destroyed. 
but finding family genealogies, making connections. A couple of them were, were kind of already in place for them that some genealogists had kind of already put together. The, not the story that they told, but at least the people and the names and where they were at particular places and times that would enable them to tell the story. But a couple of them, they actually, uh, I know um, one of them was done by uh, Mike uh, Wheeling. He, I know, spent at least 40, 50 hours of primary research, just getting the, the facts together so that he could tell, not, I'm, so I'm not talking about writing this, I'm just talking about the very, very basic research that he could get together to tell that story. And, uh, you know, that's that's that shows enthusiasm, it shows them get, buying into the project, and that was really exciting for me to see, wow, they, they realize both how to do that, which is important in skill development, but also that they see that the story matters and that this is what I need to do to get that story out. Uh, and that kind of digging into it is always impressive for me. Did they have any letters or diaries or anything like that? Or was it just like ship records and government records and church records? Mostly, mostly ship stuff um, most, uh, and government stuff. Uh, there's, the, the French are very good at taking census counts. There's, there's like in the 18th century alone in in, uh, in Acadie, there are, I forget the number, there's there's like 21 censuses or something like it's like, like every two or three years they want to take a census part of that speaks to the disruption of the place but part of that speaks to a, a certain french love of bureaucracy or, or something like that but um yeah the number of letters that exist from acadians from the 18th century is a very small collection um most of those have been uh, transcribed and, and published so those were available to them. There's a couple that they were able to make use of for those, for those purposes. But most of it was, we know this person was in this place in this time. And we know they were in this place 10 years later. And you can thread it together in that kind of fashion. Um, ship manifests exist for most of the vessels that sailed, most of the vessels that they brought to Ile Saint-Jean to, to, to take the people off. Uh, and then once they got to France, uh, the French were very good at, at tracking those people. It's it's actually, I, I hadn't actually done much research on this myself in the past, um, but I was amazed at the at the level of support, at least theoretical support, that was being offered to the Acadian refugees when they arrived in France. In France. They were certainly trying to deal with them. Uh, they certainly knew they had some kind of responsibility to help them. So some of them are being resettled on, on farmlands. It's crap farmland, but it's farmland. Um, some of those farms fail very, very quickly because it's crap farmland. Um, but they get sent off to other colonial projects. Some of them end up in, in South America. Some of them end up in the Caribbean. Um, some of them end up in on, uh, on as working as laborers and, and, and farm laborers in, in different parts of France. But it's an interesting move, too. And, and the students picked up on this, that these people aren't French anymore. These, they're, they're French citizens. Well, citizens because the term doesn't even exist yet. But, but they're, they're certainly recognized as subjects of France, but they're not French. They have, none of them have ever been to France. Um, the only French people they've ever met are, uh, are the officials that come through the, the villages every once in a while, taking a census every, every once in a while. But they, they're very, very conscious of that. They speak a different language. Um, most of them are, are Normans, but they're speaking Norman French from 100 years earlier. Um, and the language in France is changing in this time period. It's being standardized in this time period. Um, so they often speak totally different languages to the villages they end up in. Uh, these are not just dialects. These are almost completely different languages. 
Um, so there's all kinds of interesting things like that going on. And the students were picking up on that stuff. They were, they were, they were, they were intrigued. I think, I think they kind of assumed that, you know, they got off the boat and were left on their own because that's what happened back then. Uh, but no, there was a kind of system in place. And, and that system, of course, provided sources for them that, that enabled them to, uh, to do the project more completely. Yeah, I was just about to ask you whether, like, what was their connection with France? So these were, these were people who were born, they had lived their entire lives up to that point in Prince Edward Island or Nova Scotia. And, yeah. and their, their families would have been there for generations, developed their own Acadian yes. culture. And then, well, you speak French, so you must go back to France. Well, not just, not just because you speak French. I mean, they, they were French subjects. I mean, they're, they're on French colonies, they're in French territories, they're governed by French people. But, you know, this is kind of a standard story in colonial North American history. You know, one of the reasons the American Revolution takes place is that um, is that uh, Americans begin to realize they're not British anymore. I mean, that, that that's, <laughs> it's much more complicated than that, of course. But there is that recognition that our interests are different. And you certainly see that in New France as well, in, in, in what's modern-day Quebec today, um, a kind of gulf between the French officials that are sent in to govern the place uh, and the people that are on the ground uh, that, you know, that build farms and, and have a real interest in the communities that they're building. Do that over several generations. In the case of Acadians, you're looking at not in Ile Saint-Jean, because Ile Saint-Jean isn't even begun to be colonized until the 1720s. But lots of those families have been in the New World since the 1630s, 1640s. So you're looking at sixth, sometimes seventh generation New World people. They're a long way from France. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's still French people. I, I said only the government officials. Actually, if you go into those fishing villages, um, you see a lot of French people there. They're being brought in as seasonal laborers uh, from France. And so in the census, you'll see these interesting households that have, you know, 30 men between the ages of 18 and 45. And these are men that come in. They, they're there from probably March till November or something like that, working in the fishing industry. But they go back to France every year or they're there for two years or, or that kind of thing. But the basic groups of people that we call Acadians and that continue to have that legacy today, that's that's an old population for sure. All right. So I want to come back to the idea of primary sources and diaries and records and, and biographies, because you are working on a biography project from Nova Scotia from the 19th century of one James Barry. Yes. Um, how did you come across this Come across is, is probably the, the the wrong terminology. I edited a book over 20 years ago called Contested Countryside, which was a collection of essays um, on rural social history. And one of the essays in that book was by a Queen's University historian by the name of Stephen Maynard. And when he was an MA student, he did a, like most MA students, did a fairly small project looking, and he used the, the, the Barry Diaries in his project. And he only looked at one year of the diaries, and he just kind of used it as a snapshot and kind of ran away with it. He was looking at some other sources as well. But just editing that essay, I, it came to my attention. I was working in the same area. I made use of the diaries, again, a little bit, but not extensively uh, in my PhD research. And so he's shown up in other things that I've published since then, but in typically small ways. And to be honest, I had never really seen it as being that great a source. It was a, it was obviously a good source because it was a multi-year diary. It was decades long and so on. But like a lot of diaries, you know, there's an awful lot of talk of the weather and and sometimes not much. And if you don't really dig into it, you can get lost or or or, or distracted by those kind of superficialities. But when I did begin to dig into it, and this was probably 10 years ago, and I still didn't begin researching it until actively until about five years ago. 
But I began to dig into it about 10 years ago, and I suddenly realized, wow, there's more going on there than, than I had first given it credit for. And I began to read it. I had a single micro, I had a graduate student who was thinking of working on it. So I bought one of the reels of microfilm for him, and he ended up not doing it. But one night I just started kind of just going through the microfilm and looking at it. And I started seeing things that I just hadn't seen before or hadn't even imagined could be there. So things about politics, for example, and domestic relationships. Actually, I shouldn't say the domestic relationships, because that's really the kind of stuff that Stephen Maynard had picked up on when he wrote his piece uh, on that. He was talking about the kind of power dynamics within the household and gender divisions of labor and, and those kinds of considerations, which are kind of standard social history issues for looking at these kinds of household situations. And he made very good use of that, but I suddenly began to see other things. And so I began to realize he was a miller. I began to realize there was all this kind of environmental information in this. I began to realize there was a, a discussion of local politics and how local politics worked, not just at the kind of county level, but at the, at the, at the village level, uh, that who he was, how he operated. The role of a miller in a community. I, I mean, this famous book, uh, The Cheese and the Worms, a classic work in, 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 in global history. Uh, is a book about a 16th century miller, and really one of the dynamics of that book is well, it's you know it's because the it's because the Inquisition has come in to to talk to him about his 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 theology, but it's it's his position as a miller that brings him to light. He's a central node in a community. Communities need millers. People have to have their their grains ground. They're vital people. And they're also interesting people because nobody trusts them. Everybody assumes they're cheating. Everybody assumes that, you know, they, they're, they're like butchers. They always have their thumb on the, on the scales in some way. They're always take, but the way millers are typically paid, sometimes they get cash, but usually they're paid in, in a toll. They take some of the, the grain that they're, that they're grinding. So it's always assumed that they're taking more than they're supposed to. So people resent them. They don't like them. They're not trusted. And so they play a very particular role, necessary, but not, not, not loved. And Barry has a real personality. And it, part of it is very much related to that. Um, he's a grumpy guy. You've <laughs> described him as a narcissistic curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is. He's, he totally is. He's, um, he's certainly narcissistic. People often talk about, you know, what would you like to talk about with, with this man? And, and, and I don't really know if I could have a long conversation with him. There's all kinds of things I'd want to know. Um, there's all kinds of questions I'd want to ask him. But I, <laughs> the prospect of spending... You know, maybe if I did it, you know, an hour a day for a month or something like that, that might be bearable. But the prospect of spending a whole day with him or two days with him seemed 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 kind of hard. He's not a friendly man. But anyhow, just just to say that all of those things um, began to be clear to me that he was really really interesting. And then, just to kind of finish that, and this is really where the biography has had ended up going. Um, he has this real interest in books. He reads a lot. Um, and I knew his diary still existed at the Provincial Archives of Nova Scotia, and I hadn't had a chance until just this past year to, to go look at those. Um, but I began to realize that he was actually, that he bought a printing press. And again, this was kind of well-known in kind of Nova Scotia museum circles. In fact, part of the press still exists. It's still at the Museum of Industry in, in Stellarton, Nova Scotia. And he was printing things. But I think most people understood it that he was just doing like broadsides and pamphlets and, you know, little posters for the, for the village and things like that. But it became clear fairly quickly that he was publishing books, uh, that he's actually printing. These are all pirate copies. These are totally illegal. But he's typesetting. He's got he sets his own type and he prints and publishes 
books that he sells in Pictou County. Um, so there's this whole other world um, of Barry that I, that I just, again, hadn't imagined. And then the final thing is politics. One of my general research themes in everything I do is trying to show that this kind of condescension that we treat the countryside with, rural people with, is just totally misplaced, that people are much more interesting, much more sophisticated, much more worldly than we ever give them credit for. So he's this guy, he's a Presbyterian, he's an Orthodox free church Presbyterian, not the, not the, not the Church of Scotland, but the, the more liberal branch of the church, the more, the more libertarian, I should say, branch of the church. And, and that has a certain politics attached to it, and that has a certain cultural tradition attached to it. But he changes entirely in his life, and he becomes a free thinker at about the age of about 50, 55, something like that. And he began, begins, and it's all through books. It's all through kind of a textual community. He begins reading late 19th century, um, Amer mostly American, some British, but mostly American free, think free thought writers. And this is all part of a broader secularization movement and free thought movement that's taking place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's a big kind of theme in the history of the Western world. Um, but here's this guy, as I like to say, in six freaking mile brook, Pictou County, Nova Scotia, the middle of nowhere. But there he is. He's this kind of node of, of, of major currents of intellectual and political development in the 19th century. And he's not just reading it. He's bringing it to the community. He's reprinting these books. He's selling it to them. And there's, you know, the diary contains descriptions of him standing around the mill, debating free thought ideas with people that are bringing their grain to him. There is this kind of intellectual node at work there. And to me, it's absolutely fascinating. And, it's a, and it really points to a much richer intellectual world than we give these people credit for. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Kalida Mam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Mm -hmm.